3: was walking down an alley in San Francisco's Mission District. Witnesses saw a man get out of a white money carlo and confront Felix, and the two started arguing. Suddenly, a shot rang out, and Felix fell to the ground, dead. The shooter jumped back into the car and sped away with another man at the wheel. By the next morning, rumors were flying around the streets that the shooter was a lifelong friend of Felix's, Joaquin Syria. They had grown up together in Cuba, Word was that the two were in a dispute over money. Joaquin had been out earlier that evening with a friend who drove at White Money Carlo, but he claimed to be home with his wife and baby son for the night by the time the crime was committed. After viewing several lineups that included Joaquin's picture, two eyewitnesses ID'd him as the man they'd seen. One witness claimed that she was 80% certain, and that was close enough for the jury. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm Erlon Woods, co-creator and co-host of the Ear Hustle podcast, guest hosting for Jason Flum today. And I got to tell you, I served over 27 years in prison. And I used to always think about the people who were in here that were actually innocent, you know, dealing with the day-to-day grind and rigor of prison life. And that brings us to our guest today, Joaquin Saria. Joaquin, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Thank you. Cool, cool. And here to help tell Joaquin's story is Paige Canap. She's the supervising attorney at the Northern California Innocent Project. Paige, thanks for being here.
4: Yeah, hi. I'm super excited to meet you, Erlan, and super happy to be with you this morning, Joaquin.
3: Joaquin, can you tell me, like, since you're from Cuba, what was your life like growing up? Growing
5: up in Cuba, it was beautiful. It was beautiful, you know, for me to be a child. Growing out in my country, you know, surrounded by my family, friends. In Cuba, you do a lot of things, you know, that you're not able to do in this country. You know, I remember, you know, that in Cuba, we used to play, you know, in the street, to one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and it was no danger. Everybody know everybody, you know, because it's an island.
3: Uh-huh.
5: I had a real beautiful childhood.
3: Got you, got you, got you. So when you was a youngster, the U.S. and Cuba was beefing. You know they have a pretty fraught history. the missile crisis, the communist revolt, the embargoes. Um, not really a free flowing dialogue. So I'm just curious, like what were your impressions of the United States back then?
5: Well, let me, let me tell you this, man. Everybody in Cuba, the majority, we grew up believing everything that we watch in the TV about the United States. We really believe that Superman really exist anything that you go out from United <laughs> States we really believe that brother you know you know in Cuba we were so brainwashed you know that when we watch a movie a uh, superman wonder woman we really believe that this type of people exist in United States <laughs> you know unbelievable
3: so this is how I grow out and and and, and Joaquin um, you knew the victim in this case, Felix Bosta Rica, when you were a kid back in Cuba. You know, uh, uh, Felix, we all call him Carlitos. He was close to my
5: neighborhood. So, many, many, many times, we used to escape from the school to go swimming in the ocean. You know, <laughs> school go eat some mangoes, sugar cane. Everybody <laughs> liked to be around Felix. You know, if you go into a party, you want him to be there he was funny laughing all the time making a lot of joke definitely he, he was a
3: good a good friend right and i'm just curious uh, did you come from like a political family over in cuba my father he was a revolutionary
5: you know he was a communist he fight with fidel castro you see when fidel castro got the power my father was a part of that. yeah the majority of my family they really believe, you know, in the communists. Mm. And it was a problem in the house, you know, because we all got different views. Since my early age, I got really, really big trouble to fit in the communist party. I got trouble with that. So, you know, at the age of 15, I was called to be in the army. I was in high school at that time, but they don't care. That was a mandatory call. Uh. You know, a lot of young people escape because we don't want to do that you know, to go fight to some other country. Like a lot of youngsters in Cuba, they were sent to Angola to fight. A lot of all these young people got killed, you know? Mm-hmm. So me, myself, I, I don't want to do that. So when I was called to be in the army, I remember that I was there maybe for about six months, and I escaped. A lot of youngsters do that. After I escape, I go to my father's house and I spend some time with my father. Into my father come out and told me, and he said, You know what, Joaquin, I don't want no trouble with the government. You have to give it yourself up. Uh, do the right thing, you know. And, and I respect my father. You know, I love my father so much that this is how I ended, you know, in prison.
0: Mm.
5: And, you know, in Cuba, it's not like right here. You know, right here, when something happened to you, when you commit a crime, Right. In two or three days, they take you to court. Your due process, yeah. In Cuba, it's different. In Cuba, they arrest you, yeah, and you can be at there for one, two, three, four years, and you never go to court. Mm. Yeah, they see how it is
3: in Cuba. Damn. So um, <clears throat> in May of 1980, after spending some time in prison, you fled Cuba as a part of the Mario Boatlift which from my understanding was a mass migration of around 125,000 Cubans that was sanctioned by both Jimmy Carter and Fidel Castro. You were still a teenager at that time, right? Yeah. And I want to ask you, what do you remember about the boat ride from Cuba to Florida? Because I used to always see it on the news, you know, individuals on floats and stuff like that coming from Cuba. What, what do you remember about that boat ride? Well, Frozero, to be honest
5: with you, brother, I see a lot of boats. When I was in the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. and we're talking about a ball that you might can put 20 or 30 people in that ball. So what the Cuba government was doing is, instead of put 20 or 30 people, they used to put 200 people in the ball. So imagine it. Mm. And let me tell you, man, I see with my own eyes how a lot of ball disappear you know, in the ocean. Uh, One minute they was next to us, and when I look, it's not a tear no
0: more. Mm.
5: It is like it's gone. So it was really, 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 it was
3: really ugly, you know? Right. So fortunately for you, um, you got here safely, and you landed in Key West, Florida. Can you tell me what your feelings were when you first reached the United States? At that moment,
5: I feel... You know, I was happy. Yes, yes, I was happy completely, you know, that I fled Cuba. Mm-hmm. I was happy, you know, that I'm in the United States, that I don't have to live in fear no more. I don't have to worry, you know, about that I go and they kill by the government or something like that. Mm-hmm. I know I was in the more powerful country in the world. So at that moment, anything that they told me, I will believe it.
3: So over the next few years, you kind of skipped around to a few different cities and you finally ended up in San Francisco living with a woman named Nellie Hernandez. Nellie was a little older than you and she had six kids. And back then, you were hanging out with a couple of your partners from Cuba. Your childhood friend, Felix Costa Rica, who had also made it to the U.S., and a guy named Robert Socorro. And there was another cat from Cuba that was a hustler named Candido Diaz. What did you know about him? You know, Candido Diaz, eh, what I know about him, you know,
5: that he's a Cuban. You know, he was living in San Francisco in the Star Hotel, you know, in 1990. Mm -hmm. And I never think, you know, that he he had any type of of bad feeling about me. A father, I know, you know, we're talking sometimes. And, you know, when you got the feeling that you don't, click with that person. You know, that's the way I feel. That's the way he feel. But we never let it, you know, pass to the level mm-hmm. of having any type of problem with him. Right.
3: Okay. And, and when you was in San Francisco, and let me ask this, what was the San Francisco Police Department like?
5: So, in 1990, San Francisco Police Department, it was... Really, 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 a corrupt department.
2: Mm.
5: I already, you know, listening in the street what they was doing, how they plant drug on people' car, you know, and, and, and all that type of stuff, you know. Gotcha. Of course, not everybody, not every police is doing, you know, some really dirty thing, but well, they really got some a lot of bad apple, you know, in the San Francisco police department.
3: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: March 24, 1990, you know, my personal life at that time, it was changing, you know, for the better. You know, I met my baby's mama, you know, Johanna Pais, mm-hmm. about almost about a year ago before my son was born. I was a happy man, you know, at that time, and all my friends, all my friends was happy with me too, you know. Roberto Socorro, he was happy, a feeling they used to come into my house. It was a happy time for me, right. you know, at that at that
3: time. Until, of course, your good friend Felix Rica, was killed, which happened on the night of March twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety. So, Paige, can you um, can you walk us through what transpired that night?
4: Yeah, so what we know is that Felix Costa Rica was walking down the street with a with a plastic bag. We've since learned from Roberto Socorro that Roberto was in hiding because he had just killed someone and had asked Felix to bring him some clothes and, and toiletries and stuff. So he's walking over to the Bay Bridge Motel where Roberto is, and in... Clara Alley, which is sort of perpendicular to the Bay Bridge Motel. There are people, there's a guy in a car, Kenneth Duff, and there's a woman up in a window, Kathleen Guevara. And they both hear this loud altercation, this loud argument in the alleyway and describe these two people kind of walking back and forth, interacting with each other. There's a white Monte Carlo that the guy with the gun gets out of. And he shoots Felix Bastarica in the street and jumps back in the white Monte Carlo and drives off.
3: Right. And and that evening, Joaquin, you were spending time with another friend, 18-year-old George Varela, who was actually the son of your former girlfriend, Nelly Hernandez.
5: Yeah, yeah. I remember me and Joe Varela, we used to be real close when he was, you know, around eight, nine years old. We used to go to the video arcade all the time. We was addicted to play video. Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest, I, I feel, you know, even when I was young, I feel like he was my son. Right, he used to come to my house almost every two, three days.
3: Okay, so can you tell us like what you and you know George got into on the evening of March twenty fourth um, before y'all parted ways? I remember that night
5: I was in home with my family. You know, I expected you not know, to stay home. I was in bed and I received a phone call from George. So when I got the phone, George started told me. I said, hey, man, what you doing? I said, man, I'm right here, you know, spend some time with Johanna and with my son. Man, I'm born. Why we don't go to play video? So he convinced me. And I go out with him. Mm-hmm. And he come out to pick me out in his white Monte Carlo.
3: Oh, George Ferreira drove
5: a white Monte Carlo? He got a white Monte Carlo. Mm. He picked me out almost around 7 o'clock. We go to the area to play video. I remember that we got there almost around 7.20 or 7.30. We was playing video, but out of the blue, he came out and told me and say, Hey, Joaquin, I had to go back to my house
3: because my girlfriend, she come out from Richmond. So to make the story short, we leave. And when you, you left, you didn't go straight home. You and George stopped by Gallon's Bar first, where a lot of Cubans and Puerto Ricans hang out at, to see if you might meet up with a friend of yours there. But instead, you ran into another guy, Roberto Hernandez, who was not exactly a friend.
5: We don't get along. You know, me and he got a fight outside. After I see my friend Manolo, I talking with Manolo for a little while. And after the fight, Joe Barella take me home. I got to my house around 825 or 830. Never, I leave my house again. huh. And do you know what you was wearing that night? Yeah, yeah. That's something that I never go and forget that. Never. Because at that time, I don't know if you remember that a lot of young people, especially black people like me, we used to wear that type of jacket, leather jacket, you know, that it was all colorful, leather jacket. Some say, command Squad. Some other one say, Hard mm. Some other one say, Cobra. Got you. I don't take that jack I, I think that I even sleep with that jacket. <laughs> this is as much I love my commander squad.
3: Right.
5: Yeah, and this is how I get out out of my house when your Barella peep me out.
3: Okay, cool. So, George dropped you off at around 8.30, and you spent the rest of the evening at home with Johanna and your son. But by the next day, there was already a rumor going around that it was you that killed Costa Rica, as you found out from your friend Manolo when you went to Gallon's Bar the next day. Manolo and some other people
5: was outside the bar. When Manolo see me, Manolo approached me, you know, and he said, hey, Joaquin, how you doing, my friend? You know, we embrace. And he said, man, why you don't leave the city? And I look at him and say, leave the city? What are you talking about, Manolo? He said, man, Carlito got killed last night, you know, and, and the rumor is that you did it. And I said, hey, stop playing like that, man. Do you show what are you talking about? He said, yeah. So when he told me that, the first thing that is coming, you know, in my
3: mind, I say, oh man something wrong here and I started to be afraid and it came out later that Condido Diaz was the likely instigator of that rumor, but however it got started, the two homicide detectives working the case, Art Garen and James Crowley ran with that rumor
4: so Joaquin's name comes up really fast in the investigation, and from as soon as they get his name, he is the only person they ever look into, and so. Essentially, what you can see in the police reports is that the two homicide inspectors who have Joaquin as their one and only suspect start showing his picture to the two eyewitnesses, neither of whom identify him. They ask her, well, who looks most like the shooter? And she says, well, she points to Joaquin's photo and says he looks most like the shooter, but she doesn't say it's him. and, And the guy in the car says he doesn't pick anybody out, but they still keep their focus entirely on Joaquin. But Joaquin didn't even match the descriptions that the two witnesses gave, right? No, yeah. So, so the, the police did get descriptions from the eyewitnesses of the shooter and, and the things they described, because they both sort of say they see him from a distance, kind of the silhouette. They say he's got an afro and that he's wearing this long trench coat. And we know from independent witnesses, including the guy Joaquin got in a fight with who you know, didn't like him and had no reason to lie for him, that Joaquin's hair is in a long jerry curl, not in an afro. And he's wearing this short, short leather jacket and not a long trench coat. And in fact, no one had ever seen Joaquin ever in a trench coat. And he didn't even own a trench coat. You know, thank God that I stopped at the Galambal, Because
5: you see, everybody see me, how I was dressed. Everybody, the people the separated the fight, they remember how I was dressed. They remember that I got a Jerry Creole.
4: I mean, even when they search the house, they're never able to find anything to connect Joaquin. And and so, you know, it doesn't match. He doesn't match the descriptions. And he's got an alibi. His his girlfriend and their roommate tell the police from the very beginning that he's home that night by 830.
3: Nevertheless, Garence and Crowley stay focused on Joaquin as a suspect. And so at that point, Joaquin, you went to the police station on your own, correct? I cannot
5: take it no more, man. I cannot take it no more. It was so much rumor that I said, man, I had to go talk to with the homicide. I had to go talk to with the homicide. And voluntarily, I go with my lawyer to speak to the homicide.
4: About two and a half weeks after the shooting, and he tells them that he was with George Varela in the white Monte Carlo. And he tells them how to find George, says, "I, you know, I dated his mother, Nelly Hernandez. They live at this address. Here's what he looks like. Here's the car he drives. I mean, basically everything they need. And they pull in George Varela. And George is initially saying, well, I can tell you what happened up until the time Joaquin and I split up. And then he says he went home after. And he says, well, I probably, I probably went somewhere after, though. And they never ask him, where did you go? Instead, what they say is, we know Joaquin was the shooter you're going to go down for this murder. He's, you know, George is 18. They tell him, you're going to go down for this murder unless you stop lying and covering up for Joaquin. And they essentially tell him, like, he's just got to say that Joaquin is the guy in the car with him at the time of the shooting and that Joaquin is the shooter. And George Varela literally says, okay, whatever you said. And then he repeats the story that they have now fed to him. And and that's it.
0: Mm.
3: So I guess subsequently later... You, you end up getting arrested, Joaquin. Yes. And you end up getting arrested based on a confession from George.
4: Or at least from George saying exactly what the police told them to say.
3: Okay. So he oh, he was he fabricated it from the officers Garens and Crowley.
4: Yeah. I mean, they tell him he's got to say it's Joaquin. That's like, then they keep going back to the eyewitnesses. Basically, the witnesses make positive IDs only after they're repeatedly shown Joaquin. And for one of them, she doesn't even make her first positive ID until the preliminary hearing when he's literally sitting in a red jumpsuit at the defense table. And then she's like, oh, I'm sure that's the guy. And she says it's based on his attitude that she can see is is how she's identifying. I mean, there's a lot of racism all through this trial. Like, She even says, I think they were speaking African. So on April 19,
3: 1990... Joaquin, you were arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Bro, what was going through your head? I mean, did you even think this shit was real? You know what? Let, let me tell
5: you this, wolf, well, Not even when I was in my trial, I really believed that everything was real. I was thinking that I, I was in a candy camera show looking all these people coming and uh, pointing me with a finger. and yeah, uh, the man. And in my mind, I say, man, I know, I know the camera is going come out and they go and say, Smile, you in candy camera. You know, because that was a famous show at that time. <laughs> I used to watch that show too much. Right, right. You know, and, and I and I say, you know what, man? What, what happened to me, I I cannot believe it. You you cannot being innocent, believe that what is happening to you is real. You you cannot. Right. You know, and that's what happened to me. And, you know, to respond to your question, no. You know, I still don't get it. I still don't even get it. Man, you've been charged with Frost the Good Morning. I still don't get it.
4: So George had actually kind of disappeared. George Varela, had, he'd not shown up for the prelim. He was missing leading up to the trial. I honestly believe Joaquin's attorney just didn't think he was even going to have to deal with George. It was just going to be this eyewitness ID case. And so he did, a, I think, a fairly good job you know, showing all these discrepancies between the descriptions and what what Joaquin actually looked like, their own inconsistent statements and kind of the evolution of their IDs. He did a nice job of showing that George Varela's timeline didn't make any sense, that there was this like big gap in between the way he says what they did that night and how he drove Joaquin home, his timeline lines up with Joaquin's, that Joaquin is home long before the murder happens. But what he missed, what he what he didn't manage to do, and, and one of the things I really respect about him is that he actually gave us a declaration saying he was ineffective because he didn't present to the jury. The jury never heard that Joaquin's name came from the homicide inspectors first and that they told Varela essentially that he had to identify Joaquin. So the jury just never heard that. What they heard instead was this guy who knows Joaquin, who'd grown up with him around, is saying he's the guy who was with me in my car and who got out and shot him. And then he hears that corroborated by these two independent eyewitnesses. And Joaquin's attorney presented witnesses who described what Joaquin looked like that night, how he had the jerry curl and the short jacket, but he never presented the alibi witnesses. So they also didn't hear that Joaquin was at home with his one-month-old son and that they had a good reason to remember that night because they were going to celebrate the one-month anniversary of his birth the next day. So, you know, they knew that George Varela was incentivized. They knew he got immunity. They knew he was in and out of trouble. So it wasn't a super strong case even with what they heard, but what they never heard was anything else about someone else actually did it or that Joaquin had this really credible alibi, and so they end up convicting him.
5: It don't matter if I'm trying to explain to you a thousand times. I cannot even feeling close to really, really tell you how I feel when they come out with the guilty verdict. You know, everything inside me stop. Everything. I stop breathing. My heart stop. It is a feeling that, that you can never, you can never explain how it is that they find you guilty, especially find me guilty of the murder of my best friend. Man. that's what really killed me. How can I be doing time for the murder? or my best friend made somebody that I love even to today
0: Bean Dad The Dress 30 to 50 feral hogs If you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey, I do too Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm Elia
3: Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen
5: a man take care of my mother the way she
3: needed to be taken care of.
2: And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Defect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
5: I ended almost open Pelican Bay prison. It was the most tough prison in the California system at that time. I see people. When they told these people, you go into Pelican Bay, I see grown men crumble in the floor and crying. When I was in San Queen, (laughs) you know, and and I asked him people and I say, hey man, why he crying? I said, man, you don't know where we're going. He said, we're going to Pelican Bay. And I said, what about it? I said, Cuba, let me tell you, man, it is no joke. He said, man, wait until you get there. You know, and it was true. You know, when I got up there, man, every time that you hear a loud sound, in that prison, it was not a false alarm. It was somebody got killed. You know, and I say, man, how did I end in there? But my mind still do not stop it, play some trick on me. I remember, you know, I used to wait into my and go to sleep, and I used to cover my head with the blanket real tight, and I used to close my eyes real tight, and I used to say, man, when I open my eyes now, when I open my eyes now, I know this, this is a dream. This is a dream. I go and be home with my son, with my baby's mama. This is a dream, man. This is a dream. And when I uncovered myself, I'm in the cell. You know, and I said, wow, man, this is real.
3: Mm. So I got to ask you, man, like, how did you hold on to hope so much for all those years? Because I always, I always say, you know, for a person that committed crime, it's hard, you know, to deal with the time. But for an innocent person sitting there, it's a whole different level. Because you're going through everything, whether it's the the violence in the prison, the abuse from the cops, whatever it is, the COs, whatever it is. So how did you hold on to hope that you would get out? You know what? In the beginning, I
5: was completely angry with God. Everything that I got in my mind is, how did I go and prove that I don't do this? What I can do? You know, I'm... I'm the good thing about it is, and thank God, you know, to all the emails, you know, in every prison that I be, brother, in every prison that I be, every email believes in me. Mm. They can see through into my heart. They can see through into the type of man that I was, you know, I'm the so called homies, homeboy. They ask me, hey, 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 hey Joaquin. And why you here for, man? And I say, man, brother, they give me 31 year to life for a murder that I not commit. And then God they say, hey, man, you know what, man? I, I believe you, Joaquin. I believe you. And I say, thank you, man. And I receive so much respect. I receive the respect that the system don't give it to me. I got it from all these emails, wherever I go. Mm-hmm. The respect that the system denied to me, I got it from all these people.
3: And, and Paige, can you can you walk us through the post-conviction litigation? I mean, evidently, evidently nothing worked for
4: him. Yeah, I mean, you got to give Joaquin credit. Like, he litigated his case to the nines. Like, he he got himself into federal court. I know he had help from jailhouse lawyers. I have a lot of respect for jailhouse lawyers. And I mean, unfortunately, the courts just refused to look at it and refused to listen. But what eventually happened was Joaquin had earned the respect not only of other incarcerated folks, but also some of the free staff. And we were contacted by this guy, Ray Leonardini, who ran a meditation circle that Joaquin was a part of. And also Ellen Egger is a pro bono attorney who I've partnered with in a few cases was helping another guy with parole who told her, you have to meet Joaquin. Like he's actually innocent and you need to help him. And so Ellen went and met Joaquin. He told her everything. She, like everybody, found him very compelling and believable. And so she, the first thing he asked her to do was go talk to George Varela's sister, Denise Korcher. And Ellen did that. And Denise told her, my brother told me that Joaquin is innocent that it was another Cuban man and that the police really wanted Joaquin and George was scared of them. And so he went along with what they wanted. But what really turned the case around was when Roberto Socorro got out of prison, he went to Cuba and he tracked down Joaquin's family and told them that he personally knew that Joaquin was innocent because he had actually seen the whole thing from his motel room.
3: And listeners, remember, Roberto Socorro was another friend of Joaquin's. The day before all of this happened, Roberto had killed this other guy named Ruben Alfonso, and he was hiding out at the Bay Bridge Motel, waiting on Felix to bring him some clothes when he heard Felix outside arguing with Candido Diaz.
4: They had been fighting over, over a gun and not paying for the gun, and so he recognized their voices, and they start coming in and out of his view. And Dito, he hears the gunshot, and he runs out, and he sees Candido get into the white Monte Carlo and drive away. And he basically broke down and apologized to Joaquin's family and explained that while he was in, he'd been a shot caller initially. And so he felt like, you know, in addition to the normal amount of trouble you can get in in prison for snitching, that he especially as someone who'd sort of enforced those rules would be even more in danger. And for a long time, he'd hoped to be able to get his own revenge, that at some point Candido would get locked up and he would be able to avenge. Felix's death. And in some ways, fortunately, that never happened. And instead, he gets out and and tells the truth. And that really broke open the case.
3: And Ellen also tracked down a couple of people that George Varela had talked to and had told them Joaquin was innocent. One was Joaquin's sister, Denise, and the other was a woman named Caridad Gonzalez.
4: She was friends with Nellie Hernandez, George's mother, and also knew Joaquin through Nellie and through the Cuban community. George tells her also, so so very similar to what he said to Denise, that he knows Joaquin is innocent and didn't do this. And so we had these two statements from George Varela to two different people saying that Joaquin was innocent and also saying that it was another Cuban man. And so Candido Diaz is not only Cuban, but also matches the original description. He was always had his hair in an afro. He was known to wear long trench coats. And it turns out he'd had this, you know, ongoing and escalating feud with Felix Rica right before the murder. Mm-hmm. And and it all started over the weapon that may actually have been used, a forty four, which was actually the weapon they said was used to to kill Felix Pastorica. So Ellen had done most of the investigation by the time she came to me, and it was only the Roberto piece that came afterwards. But we really felt like that pushed it over the top. And then the Innocence Commission also got an eyewitness ID expert to look at the eyewitnesses and just really explain and under the social science that we now know even more why all of those, all the reasons eyewitness identifications are unreliable, but were especially so in this case.
3: Well, not just unreliable. I believe one of the witnesses, Kathleen Gavada, had another reason to identify Joaquin. You know, the
5: same woman that said from the beginning, I'm not 100% sure that night demand, I only 80%. And later, you know, she give it different changing of what she see. Well, she got rewarded
3: $10,000. So, Paige, after all this new information you put in front of them, did the courts quickly
4: agree that Joaquin was innocent? I mean, we expected them to, especially because the DA's office was on board. And
3: that was District Attorney Chester Bodine, who was repeatedly under fire from the police union and adversaries. There were, I think, like two recall elections, so his political footing was never secure. And he was the one that was making the recommendation based on the Innocence Commission findings.
4: They had this separate Innocence Commission, right? That was supposed to be this independent body. It had DAs, public defenders, experts, law professors, you know, like this whole commission of different stakeholders who all agreed Joaquin is fully innocent. And in my experience, usually when that happens, the courts are pretty willing to go along pretty quickly, right? But unfortunately, we had the exact opposite experience here. And I can only imagine some of that was the politics going on in San Francisco. The court essentially just the first thing they did was ask us to do another round of briefing. And they invited the attorney general's office in, which, you know, doesn't generally happen in superior court. But here's the court saying, you know, district attorney, I don't trust what you have to say. And so attorney general, I'm inviting you in to tell me something different. Fortunately, the AG's office also saw that this wasn't a case to oppose. Everything pointed to Joaquin's innocence. There's no reliable evidence of guilt anywhere. But even after, you know, a second round of briefing and the AG's office refusing to come in, they still had us have an evidentiary hearing. And so here we are, both sides arguing for the same thing. So we're both presenting opening statements on Joaquin being innocent. And then we're both doing closing arguments about how he's entitled to relief and how we all believe he's innocent and the judge should reverse his conviction. Luckily, by then, we'd been switched to a different judge. who was a really good, experienced judge and just saw all the problems with the case. And, and then finally, on April 18th, the court reversed Joaquin's conviction. And, and the district attorney, again, announced he was innocent. They dismissed all of the charges. <laughs>
5: Man, I almost failed to defloat. Yes, <laughs> to to go out to feel you know the freedom that I was denied for almost thirty two years, and I don't even know how to make it all the way to the door, you know. And I keep walking and walking and imagine you know when when they open the door to me and I see you know I see Pay, Ellen, my son. And my baby's mama, I see everybody, man. It was too much for me. I I, I said, my God. And it was a day unbelievable, man. This type of feeling, you have to really go through that for you can really understand what I'm talking about. Uh, it, It is unbelievable. It is unbelievable.
3: Yeah, I'm with you on that. And of course, we're all super grateful to the Northern California Innocent Project and the fantastic work that they do, because it's through them that people like Joaquin can, you know, have a chance to uh, get back to this free world. So if anyone want to show the Northern California Innocent Project some love, we'll have the link in the bio so you can do that. So. We've got to the point of the show where we do this thing called closing arguments. And first, I want to thank y'all for being here. And I also want to ask y'all to share your final thoughts for the listeners. You know, anything that you want to say, uh, any takeaway you may have. And Paige, I want to first start with you and then we can close with Joaquin.
4: So the thing That I think we haven't done a great job of yet, especially in San Francisco, is like we know there was this era in which they were treating especially young black men terribly and saw themselves as like cleaning up the streets by somehow getting people involved in homicides and throwing them away for life. And there are six people who've been exonerated out of San Francisco. All of them are black men and five of them are from this 1990 era. They all have incredible stories. You should look into all of them. Joaquin, Maurice Caldwell, Antoine Goff, John Tennyson, and Karamad Conley, who I know you've already interviewed. But what we haven't done is look back at what else went wrong there. So it shouldn't be luck of the draw, right, whose cases get looked at and who gets picked up. And so had Joaquin not, you know, convinced other incarcerated folks that he was innocent, and then one of them meeting Ellen, like, you know, this luck of the draw thing It's not okay for justice to be that arbitrary, what what little justice exists in our system. And so my hope, and and listeners, I'd love for you to encourage this, is that we actually look back. There's, There's four homicide investigators who were involved in all of these cases. We could look at their cases. We could look at all cases from this era. You know, CDCR's budget for this year is over $14 billion. Just imagine what would happen if we just spent a tiny fraction of that on actually looking for where things went wrong, starting with the places we already know things went wrong. Everybody should have a chance to prove themselves. No one's as bad as the worst thing they've ever done. And, you know, these guys who have done all this time, like you, Arlan, like you, and who have come out and shown, like, I, I mean, one of the things I just love also about what you've been doing is just highlighting the humanity of people, right? Whether they're incarcerated or not, we are, all have this huge amount to offer and give. And I just would love for us to stop leaving so many people behind and really start focusing on using our resources in better ways.
5: What I wanna say, you know, to all the listening, I want to let everybody know that what happened to me is continually happening right now. And the only way it can be stopped, we all have to come out together and do something about it. I always say, if we capable, to go to the moon, we have to be capable to prevent that innocent people go to prison. Simple like that. How can you go to the moon, but you cannot prevent one person to go to prison? It don't make no sense. I know right now at this moment, in some part of the country, in a courthouse somebody's going to prison right now being innocent. It is no doubt in my mind, and he going through for the same thing that I go through when I was in that position. I know we can stop it. I know we can do something about it, because I know. Number one is we need to make the digital accountable for any wrongdoing that they do. I'm not saying every digital attorney, ah, no. We got some really good digital that they do their job, they go by the law, and they honesty people, hardworking people. But we got some other one that they don't care. They don't care. They want to win a case at the space of the innocent people. We have to start that.
3: Thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Erlon Woods. I'd like to thank executive producers Jason Flum and Kevin Waters for inviting me to be here. Good looking. Special thanks to our wonderful production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production comes from three-time Oscar nominee Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Roamful Conviction, on Facebook at for Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Roam Conviction as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me online at Erlon Woods, and you can find my podcast, Ear Hustle, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast, in association with Signal Company Number 1.